Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Tanith Carey talking about feeling blah. Does your teenager ever seem to get into moods where everything is just kind of meh? Things are okay. It's fine. It's no big deal. Well, that might seem like a normal state for teenagers, but it also might be related to a condition known as anhedonia. Anhedonia is a real thing that psychologists have been investigating, and it's what happens when the joy kind of gets sucked out of life. Unfortunately, as Tanith Carey has found, anhedonia is becoming much more prevalent among teenagers today. This can make things really difficult for parents who just want our teenagers to be happy. It turns out that what we need to do as parents is actually teach our teens the skills that they need to be happy. This is especially difficult when we have teenagers who are avoidant or who don't want our help. And anhedonia can make this a lot more common. When things get really bad, it might seem like your teenager is struggling with some kind of a deep existential crisis. If you're in this situation and you're looking for the right words to cheer your teenager up, the answer might not be about what to say, but really what to do as a parent to help your teenager learn the skills to manage their own emotional state. The key comes in understanding the three phases of the reward system. We're going to talk about all of that and a whole lot more on today's episode with Tanith Carey, the author of the new book, Feeling Blah. Tanith Carey is a writer who has written 13 books on psychology, mental health, adolescence, and many other exciting topics. And her works have been translated into 35 different languages. Her articles on health and psychology appear in media outlets around the world. And this is her second time coming on the Talking to Teens podcast. Really excited to speak with Tanith about all that and a whole lot more. Tanith, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We have the book, Feeling Blah. Pretty excited to talk about that. We got a pretty jam-packed episode today, so I'm I'm really excited. Thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Good to be here. And uh, and you've been on the show before. This is a repeat. Yeah, you had a whole book about teenagers, as I recall, yep. or, or on adolescence and adolescent psychology, and it was really beautifully illustrated. So I have a whole previous episode. If you haven't checked that out, check it out. Do it. Now we are talking about your new book, which is Feeling Blah. So, wow, what a what a topic. <laughs> Time to bring into our mental health conversation. Well, I thought it was really interesting because we talk a lot about teenagers on this podcast. I think a lot of what you talk about in the book is stuff that parents complain about their teenagers a lot. Like, you know, yeah, 
yeah, school is okay. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's all right, I guess. Yeah, practice was fine. It was cool. Yeah, I don't know, whatever. And just kind of this sort of everything is kind of okay, sort of, yeah, I don't know. That's a lot of what you write about in this book, feeling blah. What, what does that even mean? Or, or what does it mean to feel blah? Right. So, uh, yeah, the book you write is called Feeling Blah, and it's why um, anhedonia has left you joyless and how to recapture life's highs. So in this context, Feeling Blah, blah is about anhedonia which is a state of loss of enjoyment and things are used to enjoy and also a lack of motivation. So you can get very stuck in anhedonia. And the reason I wrote this book was that I was amazed. There's a lot like the clinicians know about anhedonia and it's well known as a symptom of major depression. But there's more and more um, research that says that actually you can have standalone anhedonia. Yeah, it's its own thing. It's not just kind of a, a, a symptom of depression, but you can not be depressed still feel blah yeah absolutely yeah yeah in fact yeah we know a lot of teenagers who seem to be feeling that way yeah absolutely and i think it's a great shame um, across the first world we're in a mental health freefall and adonia and blah can be a precursor to depression and a waiting room and a purgatory i think in relation to parenting so that's what i also write about i think it's really important that we show our teenagers how to flourish and not to languish because I think what might be happening and there's many factors in the fact that teenagers don't seem to be as happy as they used to be and that's been happening really concurrent generations since the 50s there, there are many factors but one of the ones I'm going to talk about is the education system you know I think I think as a parent you know you have a child and then they come into the world and they're joyful and there's novelty and there's excitement and there's something there is something about growing up obviously but I think that um, the joy is being squeezed out of our young people far too early um, and some of that is the fact they are squeezed through pressure cookie co- cookie cutter education systems instead of seeing hobbies as an expression of talent or interest. They're seen as extra curricular activities to do for college applications. Fills up your resume so you can apply to colleges, right? Is it? I thought that was the whole point of hobbies. Really, it's something yeah, else. To, well, that's another same. line item to put on there. Yeah, but I wonder if we asked our grandparents, you know, they probably had legitimate hobbies, you know? Or can we just do things because we enjoy them? Can we have fun? <laughs> no, 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 no. Really interesting topic that you have here because I just think that what you're writing about, uh, this feeling of anhedonia that's really becoming more and more prevalent in the workplace. I think is also becoming really, really prevalent among teenagers. And we just hear this over and over from parents that their teens are just kind of whatever. Yeah, it's okay. Don't care. I think, yeah, really uh, what you're, what you're hitting on here um, is just, just growing it more and more people kind of are experiencing this. And it's interesting. You go into kind of the evolutionary history of anhedonia and why, where maybe it comes from, in terms of our psychology. Yeah, and absolutely. And I also tackle a lot of the neuroscience as well. And I'm looking exactly at that point. Why are we feeling more blah? What is it about modern life, which means that we are finding it hard to stay in joy and uh, yeah, just enjoy our life. And I think it's a really, I think what I wanted to do with this book is add some more nuance to our mental health discussion, because we talk a lot about depression and despair at one end. And we talk about this kind of unicorn state of joy and happiness at the other, but what about the middle 
the middle gray area where a lot of everything else, you know, <laughs> day to day life. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they say, you know, unless you know the word for it, it's more difficult to fix it, you know, name it to tame it. So anhedonia um, is a word that I just wanted to bring out into more into the public discourse. Because, you know, when I discovered it, I was generally surprised. I was like, oh my God, there's like so many thousands of research papers on this. Well, how come I've never heard about this? Because obviously, I, you know, I recognize I was in a state of blah. And I think when you're in a state of blah, like maybe as our teenagers are, they don't think it's something that you can do anything about. They just think it's a state of being. Um, and I think that's a great shame because what we need in the world is people who are flourishing, who are making most of their potential. Uh, when people are in blah, their focus tends to narrow. When they come out of blah, their focus starts to widen. There's a lot of this work has been done by Professor Barbara Fredrickson. Yeah, once you start to feel more positive emotions, you, your whole mindset expands and you start to see possibilities where there weren't possibilities before and start to make connections where you didn't see connections before. There's so much, so much positive that happens when you start to feel more positive about what's going on in your life. I just think really yeah, a lot of what you're talking about is so endemic of the teenage years. And really a lot of it is the fact that as teenagers, we're kind of we're kind of forced to do things that necessarily things we chose for ourselves or things that we want to study or learn about or are interested in. It's just kind of put on our plate or handed to us. God, I, I don't know, especially after reading your book, I really feel like that that's a big problem. I mean, what I talk about in the book is also the concept of spark, in, and that is the idea that every young person has an innate talent or something they're drawn to and they would do anyway without grown-ups getting involved. And you can often do it in childhood, you know, the way the kids play or the way they relate to their friends and stuff like that. And I just think the concept of spark, again, it was actually um, a concept sort of developed in America, but it seems somehow to have been lost, is that I think we need to introduce this back to our adolescents and our teenagers and just like, is it communicating with others? Is it being a good listener? Is it being able to grow plants? Is it being great with animals? Is it being good with music? Is it everybody has one? And that sounds a bit fine in the sky, but actually, if you think about it, you have one, I have one. And I uh, like, I think we need to give our adolescents permission to look inside themselves, do some interception and just go, okay, what's yours? How do you want to develop it? Even if it doesn't turn into a career, it will give them joy, fulfillment, creativity. I think what I'm trying to say with this book is that uh, the elephant in the room here is that we are facing a very uncertain future on this planet. And that we think it's normal or we think it's okay or acceptable to sort of not be that excited about what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that what we need, like we have a lot of challenges to face. We need motivated, flourishing young people who understand um, the pressure that modern life is having on their brain chemistry and who understand some neuroscience and know that they are not stuck here. Um, I think what I really enjoyed about the book was talking to some of America's top neuroscientists about the neuroscience of joy. Because if you ask the average young person, like, you know, they all, they'll say they want to be happy, but like, if you say to the average young person, how do you, how is happiness formed in the brain? <clears throat> they don't know. Most grown-ups don't know either. What I think is so interesting, because what I find is when you ask parents, what do you, what, what are your goals? What do you want for your child? By large, the most common thing they say is, hey, I want them to be happy. I want to be happy. 
but yet, what does that actually look like? And the kids don't know how to make themselves happy because they don't understand like the working of the reward circuit. They don't understand, in fact, that joy is not just one thing. It comes in three parts. I mean, this was a wonderful thing that I heard from Professor Kent Berridge, who was really helpful to me on that in that brain chapter. It's like, you know, uh, joy is the anticipation. So the build of do the building up of dopamine. It's the uh, enjoyment in the moment. So then you get the release of that dopamine and some opiates and all the rest of it. And then after that, there is also the third stage, which is remembering that event or what made you happy. So you want to do it again. So it's just like simple, like some more understanding. Oh, I want, I want to be happy. But like, what makes you happy? What is going to go in your brain that's going to actually give you that experience? Because the fact is for like adolescents, like life is stressful. Um, there's a lot of pressure. They have a lot of cortisol raising in their brains. They have to get this mark, that mark. They have to achieve. They have to look good. They have to keep up on social media. They are overloaded with cortisol. Um, you know, there are no psychological kind of uh, issues which don't have raised cortisol implicated in them in some way. So we need to accept that modern life is difficult and to give them the tools and the understanding to push back. But and their entire lives. And I think now is the right moment. Like adolescence is a great time to kind of get these ideas in place. It totally is. It's such a time of kind of like you're starting to gain perspective. And we talk about metacognition, this this opening up of the prefrontal cortex and starting to understand, to think about the way that you're thinking or to understand your own kind of problem solving abilities and see that, hey, wow, I tend to kind of approach problems in this way or in that way. And while that maybe is a little limited. <laughs> That's a really good point about metacognition. Yeah, absolutely. It's just the right time to introduce it. Yeah. Because otherwise what you get is you have a lot of people entering the workplace and the people um, who I get reactions from the book. And it's not just the older people who've been in the workplace a while. It's young people who get there and go, oh, I'm really burnt out. I'm really, I don't see the point of this. So no wonder we have the great resignation. No wonder we have people like quitting on TikTok. Because th this stuff, they've been told all their lives, you know, from this age, you've got, you've got to have to aim for this college, you're going to have to aim for this grade. They get there, then they're just put into more competition and more pressure, and they just don't want any part of it, you know. So I think that we need to, we need young people who can think in a bigger way about what success is and what happiness is. We need to teach young people the skills to be happy. We think of happiness as this this thing that hopefully just kind of magically happens to you. <laughs> if, you if things are going well in your life, you'll be happy and you have friends and all this. But there's actually research on what what does it take it psychologically, what is what does it look like to be content with your life versus not to be content with your life? And and we actually have some information about what that looks like. Yep. Absolutely. So the great thing is we know more about the working of the brain at any point at any point in history. So although we're probably living in more challenging <laughs> pressure is on. You have no excuse not to be happy and fulfilled and excited about every day. Well, I don't want to say it like that, but like, you know, like like we can see joy being formed in the brain. So it's time to harness that knowledge and use it to push back. Because otherwise, are we gonna continue this mental health health threefold? Yeah. I don't think that's a good idea. It's time for a pivot, quite a radical pivot, I think, definitely. 
So what do you think that parents need to teach our teenagers or what do we need to change in the conversation with teenagers to really get them thinking about what what it is in their life that makes them happy and how they can pursue that? You know, the first thing I would like parents to spend more time with is um, encouraging young people how to notice how they feel and not telling them how they feel. Because it's only when we notice that we don't feel good or why or we have some self-awareness that we can actually do some steps. And I think parents need to be prepared to listen to uncomfortable emotions, sit with their kids and just let them process. And I think that they need to give their kids a stronger emotional vocabulary um, I know I think this is more challenging in boys than girls you can you can speak to, sometimes I speak to adolescent boys and they just simply don't have the words to describe how they feel unless we they have that interception that noticing of what makes them feel bad how are they going to know what's going to make them feel good so that's what I'd like like to start with from parents um, and then I would like them to bring a kind of growth mindset to happiness you're having a bad day it's kind of a cliche now but like this feeling will pass like the clouds or this anger will settle like the glitter in a glitter dome. So you're actually giving a really good examples for parents about teaching their children how to manage their emotions. Because otherwise, what I think young people think is all out of their control and they can't do anything and they think deeper. And I think it's just like giving them some sense and understanding of how their brain works, how their happiness chemicals work. Obviously, the brain is a highly complex organ. And there's a lot we know, but like just some basic kind of like what the main chem chemicals are, what the stress hormones are, um, what can affect it. For example, you can bring all sorts of stuff into it. It's difficult talking to adolescents about diet, but maybe a value in your home that what what you eat is also feel good. You know, having a rainbow of food also helps you produce serotonin in the gut. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but like exercise, like, oh, don't we all know we're supposed to exercise? But like, you know, we now know that exercise is better than antidepressants at changing mood. And that's just incredible, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? um, All that kind of stuff. So I think that that's important. I think we have backed our children into like, you know, because I've also written about competitive parenting. And it's not actually competitive. It's not the parents' fault. The school system, the educational league tables, globally, locally, you know, we've all been caught up in this massive machinery that's supposed to sell success. But, you know, the, our kids are not successful because they are struggling so much. I'm not sure how you, your stats are in the US, but like in, 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 in the UK, you know, it's not like something like one in six or one in eight. Children over 14 has some kind of, you know, mental health challenge. We have to kind of turn this around in a big picture way. So... The book is really about more than Anhedonia. It's more about uh, facing up to the challenges. <laughs> and, you know, also, what example are we setting? This is part why I want to come out. What example, example am I setting to my two children if I can't enjoy life? So we also have to overcome our own blah so that we show that life is worth living, how to enjoy it, set a good example, make time for our hobbies, our self-care. Yeah, like time was when we can be together, you know? So, yeah, reprioritize and I think is really important. And it feels like that really just all, it all goes together because as parents, we're, we're so concerned with trying to get our teens talking and I hear parents so often, you know, how do I, my teen just says, hey, my day was, was fine. Good. Yeah, That's whatever. Really 
good point, Andy, though, isn't it? Because is that a communication issue between the parents? Do Is the teen, I'm just suggesting, throwing out there, are they just closing that conversation down because they don't want to throw anything outside there in case they're criticised? I think that sometimes, you know, obviously we, we, as a generation of parents, we tend to be intensely worried about our children. So we, we're coaching and guiding, but like to the sensitive ears of a teen, they they hear it as criticism. So you know, they- whenever I throw anything out, it's going to come back at me as something I did wrong. So maybe I just shouldn't even just say anything. Yeah, just that's yeah, fine. It's okay. It's whatever. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. I think that's so true. Yeah, obviously, if that's what we're getting from our teenager, yeah, it was okay. It was fine. It was not a big deal. Whatever. Then we've we've trained them somehow in some way to respond that way when <laughs> we ask them how was it <laughs> or whatever the 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 answer is not that your teenager is crazy or that they're just not communicative but i hear this from a lot of parents you know so it's something about the way that we're we're conditioning them to not respond with a lot of words or to be really uh, to just say mm, yeah it was, it was okay i i think that's I think I think teenagers are really smart and savvy. I, I think that that if that's a response you're getting from your teen, then probably they've realized that's the best way to respond. <laughs> like Lal asked me, "How was your day?" or whatever. Yeah, why didn't I narrow the target for like comment or criticism? Why didn't I just not give? Uh, yeah, it was okay. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, given as a as a as something they could improve. Also, like if your kid comes home from school, they've like been in a classroom with I don't know twenty thirty people they didn't choose. They've been told what to do by adults all day. It's just like when you come home from a long day at work, you don't want to be downloading what happened because also your parents wouldn't necessarily understand what the dynamics of your school life are like. So you know, I um, it's always that thing. As soon as kid as kids come home, don't instantly ask them what happened you know i also feel that that's a gendered thing and i don't know i don't know why it is but it, it's always moms that i get that are saying hey i can't get my team to talk to me i can't get my team to open up to me at the end of their day i just want them to just tell me what's happening it's never dads that dads are never like hey how do i get my team to talk to me and open up but but also i think it's because that like there there's a gendered sort of way that we deal with stress where where females are more conditioned to verbalize and talk about things that are happening whereas males are more conditioned to internalize and not talk about what's what we're struggling with or what's going on i also think in that dads instinctively know that just being together like yeah it's not that big a deal just yeah yeah yeah, just kind of just hanging out and just saying hey hey what's up hey how's it how's it going <laughs> yeah is enough sometimes it's all you got to do really just Yo, yo, what's happening? <laughs> By me, let me to go. Let's play a video game. Let's go out into the garden and play with the dog. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go for a walk or go do a thing or I'm, I rolled a cigarette. Do you want to go? Yeah, I'm gonna go for a walk and just yeah, you, know, you want to talk or whatever. It's not, it's not like that big a deal. But also, there's not, there's not that much pressure or something. And and I think that that's so important for parents is if, if you want your teenagers to talk to you about these blah kind of feelings that they're having or um, just kind of feeling eh about life, there, there has to be a feeling that they can share that and they can talk to you about that and that, you know, I don't know, you're not going to necessarily pounce on it or make it into a big deal or something like that. It's just, 
yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, it's not a big deal. Yeah, lots of people feel like that. And, you know, yeah, let's keep talking about it. Let's keep checking in on it. Um, but that's also a good point because, I mean, I think that people don't speak about anhedonia and blah because they think, oh, they don't feel entitled to. They feel not depressed. I'm functioning. I'm going to school. I'm not I'm not in my bed curled up in a ball crying. I'm I'm getting off. I noticed that in your book a lot. It's on the way to depression, but it's not depression yet. So hey, so I'm this isn't this isn't depression. Yeah. So what's so it's not that big a deal. Maybe it's easy to kind of sweep it under the carpet or something as as not that big a deal because you know we have uh, we have terms for the more advanced stages of this. <laughs> if it's not there yet. Oh yeah, I mean, like some some people said, "Oh, I'm pathologizing it." I'm not pathologizing it because the word is already out there. Um, I am bringing it out into the open because I think that if we are living, you know, I don't think we should be accepting blah as the status quo, as many of us do. Teens should be accepting it as the status quo. Like what, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen-year-old kids are like going, "Oh, this is my life." Like, no, no, yeah, that's not what life is. Yeah, but but I think it's so easy. It's it gets so normalized and modern culture and you talk a lot about uh, all of the psychology behind that how technology is driving some of those feelings or ideas but it seems like we really get this feeling like yeah so what yeah okay yeah you're not that excited about life so what nobody is you know yeah 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 deal with it not a big deal i, I really don't think blah should become the new norm but if you look at the stats I mean, such that there are you can see that you know languishing is you know, as defined by Corey Keyes, he started make, doing some research this on the 2000s, and he saw it double. He saw the state of languishing. I think I'll check the figure figures, but like go from 12% in 2000, and you know, by two decades later, it was up to 21%. Wow. Yeah. And it's even greater in the workplace, but obviously the maybe the the questioning was slightly different. But, you know, when you look at that, there are some statistics that go like, you know, it's across the generation. So there's one uh, set of data I quote in the book, and it's got millennials, 30% languishing, Gen Z, 26%, Gen X, 21%, and baby boomers actually the least 14%. But it's starting, you know, I think, you know, I think you could understand blur a little bit in the context of like middle age where there are hormonal shifts, which where estrogen is affecting your dopamine and or like testosterone is falling and that's also affecting your happiness chemicals. But I don't really feel that we should be accepting this in like the adolescent years because otherwise the kids are not like they are not in a good they're not they're not starting off life in a strong position. We have to have a, a next generation who's going to have to be so creative, so full of possibility, um, and, you know, so full of hope. We really need some hope. We're here with Tanith Carey talking about what to do when your teenager seems to have lost their joy for life. What can we do as parents when we have a teenager who may not be depressed, but they're definitely not happy and excited about life? This is a condition known as anhedonia, and we've got the answers on the back half of this episode. Take a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Well, I mean, the Greeks got it right, didn't they, so long ago by saying that true happiness comes from a life of meaning. And you can have fun, but it can be frivolous. But like, you know, that all the good we feel today can be the happiness you feel tomorrow or good good you do. Maybe we need to remind our kids that doing stuff for other people is not in a selfish way, but is one of the best ways 
to make yourself feel good. If we accept that the brain is not a happiness machine, then at least that gives us a more realistic baseline to work with. The knowledge of how happiness works will mean that we can at least meet it. We can basically catch up with what modern life is doing to our brain because at the moment there's a big lag and that's why so many of us are depressed. So we need to, to close that gap is what I'm saying. We tend to think that dopamine is the molecule of reward, but actually it's the molecule of anticipation. Anticipation. Basically, dopamine is there not to make you happy. It's there to make you get up and get your survival needs met. The brain is not a pleasure generator. It was never supposed to be a pleasure generator. It's a survival machine compared to other primates. We have more dopamine circulating in our brains, and that is possibly what made us the most successful species Want to hear the full episode? Head over to TalkingToTeens.com slash register for a free trial of our premium podcast. You get exclusive access to loads of great content with no obligation. And your membership supports the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Get started today with a free trial over at TalkingToTeens.com slash register. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.